When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. everyone and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 39. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Jeb Card. And today we have special guest, Stacey Dunn, and we're talking about her article in the upcoming book, Lost Cities, Found Pyramids, due out in September. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Jeb, how are you doing? Uh, doing all right. Great. And today we have a special guest, Stacy Dunn. Hi there. Hi. So, Stacy, we brought you on to talk about some really interesting stuff that you have done out in Peru and an article or a chapter that you have wrote for Jeb's upcoming book that should be due out in September. Can you give us a little bit of your background and how you got uh, associated with this project? Sure. So I'm a recent PhD from Tulane University in archaeology, and I actually specialize on the central coast of Peru. Um, so a little bit north of the capital of Lima on the coast. And I work with um, the later intermediate periods. So we're talking about 1100 to about 1400 AD. And my work is is primarily kind of classic archaeology style. Um, but while I was there and working with a couple of other projects and, and one around the area, um, I ran into repeatedly at archaeological sites um, some really interesting things that were going on there. In fact, just basically at first it looked like a bunch of trash and then I started realizing, no, this isn't uh, just someone's trash pit, although in some cases it is. But uh, lots of these were places where people were going there for like kind of clandestine uh, witchcraft or brujeria. And they had like bottles and offerings and photos and burnt things and skulls. And so that really got me wondering like, what the heck is going on here? And then I fell down the rabbit hole. And since Jed is kind of knowledgeable on all sorts of crazy things of the occult or who knows what. That's generally what I do. Right. Yes. So I basically, and knowing him from Tulane, I talked a lot about with him about this sort of stuff and came up with the chapter that is in the book. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, it can at least be mildly my fault that I've taken you off of your, your normal professional path here. Um, I actually had a question. You mentioned witchcraft, you used that term, and we'll, we may get into some of the, sort of the classification uh, of that. But anthropologists often, when they talk about witchcraft, what they're really talking about is witchcraft accusations. Like, oh, I got sick and that person down the village, you know, did this. Or, you, you know, and there's modern witchcraft. Like, oh, in the 1950s, things are going wrong. It must be the communists. You're talking about people actually doing things. Yeah, indeed. Um, and you're right, the terminology does get rather sticky at times because there's what we can do as anthropologists where we want to classify groups and do we call them brujos or, or witches? Do we call them um, curers or shaman or what have you? And then there's what do people call themselves and the act kind of activities that they're doing? Um, so that was something that I dealt with, which I thought was really interesting. And yeah, these are indeed people that you can hire and go out to the archaeological sites and they will do various ceremonies um, depending on what you need. And so there, it, 
it's a much more complex uh, array of, of activities than we would normally think are out there. I have a question, and this is a terminology question just before we get into the meat of this. Um, so you're describing witchcraft and you're describing ritual. Um, why is the witchcraft ritual different than a religious ritual or a ritual done by a shaman or a shaman-like figure in the community? Okay, so what we've got going on is there's a, a group of different sorts of non-ecclesiastical spiritual practitioners. We've got shamanism, folk healing, witchcraft, and sorcery. Okay. Right. And all these different terms, although people, including myself, will toss them around interchangeably, they're really not. There's um, some really important nuances between them um, regarding whether or not you're acting for good or ill, what type of supernatural sources are you drawing upon, um, kind of, you know, a brujo is, is basically a term that's used throughout Peru by pretty much everyone in regards to all those spiritual practitioners. If it's, if so, someone who says it, uh, who is using this as like a purgative term, um, which is different than some of the actual practitioners use. So, so how how does a, a bruja? Brujo, yeah. How does a brujo describe themselves? Okay, well, brujeria is, oh, how do you describe this? Because um, like in colonial times, they use that term to talk about people who have made a contact contract with satan oh right um and I mean, it's coming across from europe to some degree at least parts of it okay the, the idea okay yeah absolutely uh whereas people who are view bruveria and, and witchcraft as something very negative um they're usually it's the people who are causing misfortune or causing sickness or um doing harm to others. And okay. this gets back into that difference between accusations and, and then the fact that people really are making alters to various things, uh, which is why it gets really complicated. Well, I think that's interesting because later on in the, in the chapter um, that Stacy wrote, she talks about some of the artifacts that she found at one of the sites. And a lot of the rituals that you were saying that these artifacts were attached to were things like bringing luck and finding love and attraction and, things that I would associate with being positive, not necessarily inflicting harm. And you do see those, I mean, and by, by and large, that's the majority of the types of activities that are going on. Yeah, you'll see um, a spell where they're calling the ancestors to help them in forming a relationship. But at the same time, you also, there are examples of little spells that you say where you're actually trying to separate a couple. In other words, split a couple up and with that will be accompanying like a photo ripped in half and the other half of it's gone. Gotcha. Right. So uh, both those, both positive and negative activities are, are happening. Okay. So um, one more terminology thing I want to get at, and I think this will, Job will probably want to jump into on this one. You mentioned early on in the, in the chapter um, that the term pseudo-archaeology is not necessarily the best term to apply in these situations because we are dealing with indigenous folks who are doing indigenous activities. And instead, you suggest using alternative archaeology uh, as a different term because of the implications of the word. Can you explain that argument a little bit can you explain that argument for people who haven't been able to read the um, the chapter? Right. Actually, um, we kind of kicked it around the other way. Yeah, I'm oh, kind sorry? of on, the on that. I don't know if I really want to call it alternative archaeology either. Um, we're definitely the the debate on whether or not you use the phrase alternative archaeology or pseudo archaeology um, is something definitely that we're kind of struggling over these 
these labels as to are we talking about this as you know beliefs traditions that better teach us about the past or beliefs of traditions that are just something different than practiced practiced by the westerners or by orthodoxy and and what those terms are doing is they're they're very evaluative rather than descriptive right um so out of those two i'd rather not use either of them and i'm not sure which direction to go in um i was taking some cues out of uh, what medical anthropologists are doing, um, and they're experiencing a similar split between do you call it complementary or alternative medicine, um, and how do you divvy that from traditional medicine versus scientific medicine? And whatever I kind of ended up was um, there's a guy who did a PhD um, in central Mexico, uh, Cook is his name, and he actually outlined it with three different terms. And he did orthoscience, heteroscience, and extra science. Um, whether or not it's orthoscience is aligned with like the dominant orientation, right? Heteroscience are those opposed to that central orientation, right? That orthodoxy. Right. And then extra science, those people who are kind of on the outside, not really involved in either. And I, I like that maybe a bit more, but it's not as catchy. <laughs> yeah, the, the this that question of alternative versus pseudo became a huge part of the discussion when we were putting together uh, Lost City Found Pyramid, which is the book that this chapter uh, appears in. And there are people that are very much no, it is pseudo, it is not scientific, etc. And there are very much people who, and, and we've talked about this before when when I've been on with Ken. Uh, and cause we kind of batted back and forth that, like literally naming names, uh, uh, like, like Cornelius Hortel, for example, um, people that are, uh, very much, they find that to be very evaluative and judgy as Stacy said, and prefer alternative. And we talked about this with the, you know, there's one thing, if you have this idea, there's another thing, if you're basically saying, screw you science, there's stargates under Babylon. And funny and story. You, I just got an email about Stargates, but go ahead. Oh God! Then I hear a show coming. But <laughs> uh, but no. And, and Stacy and I have gone back and forth. This and one of the things that has struck me is I'm not sure all those terms work 100% perfectly outside the Anglosphere anyway. I think it starts to get into 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 context. So this is really just a debate over what do we call this particular phenomena when we're outside of like America or the Westernized world. Because I'm perfectly comfortable pointing something out as being pseudo-archaeology. I mean, alternative archaeology means something different to me. Um, it's not necessarily a positive thing either. Well, how do you, what do you, what does it mean to you? Alternative archaeology? Alternative archaeology is when you've got, for me, uh, is when you've got somebody who is not qualified to be doing archaeology, who's been given power via the state or the government to go and do archaeology. Pseudo-archaeology to me is basically how they're interpreting that and the agendas that they're pushing around it, or just people in general who are doing like couch archaeology and determining that because they looked on Google Earth that there's a pyramid at the bottom of the ocean. I, I actually I usually like to call that lazy, but that's a whole other <laughs> matter. Um, well, see, see, the thing is, is we don't apply that evenly, though, um, because, yes, yes. for example, um, one guy that I mentioned in my stuff a bit is uh, Roger Atwood. And he writes a lot about um, the global trade of looted antiquities. And looted I used his textbook this. I used his book for a textbook this uh, semester, actually, stealing history. Yeah, and it's it's really awesome and interesting. But you know, he's a journalist, and he he definitely attributes himself as a journalist and author. And he does not have any archaeological training. And so we're getting into this game of who gets to tell the story, right? Do we do we call someone like him an alternative archaeologist because he's talking about archaeology in a non-professional fashion? And we're also running into this idea of um, like political ideology and dehumanismo because we're, we're looking at how the the nation, how the government, how academia and indigenous minorities interact, and that can be exploitative and it can be good, whether or not we're doing kind of like this transformative thing, or whether or not we're asserting rights and dealing with compensation. So uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why it may seem like we're just trying to uh, squabble over 
vocabulary, but it's because we're touching on the fringe of a lot of like really contentious, important identity topics. And those and those and those vocabulary are going to help govern what we think we should do about things. Now, another thing to point out here with the discussion that the three of us are having is that we're having this discussion on the level of three professionals who are familiar with the field of archaeology and familiar with the field, the the influx of pseudo-archaeology or whatever we're going to end up calling it. What the other side of this is, is we have a lot of listeners who are not archaeologists, who are just interested in the field, or maybe they are part of the fringe. I, you know, it's fine. Listen to my show. I don't care. Um, but to them, this discussion over terminology, I mean, can you see how that might sound to them? I can at the same time. I'm not saying it's it, bad. I'm just saying we're well, having two different conversations. Well, the thing is, this this kind of gets to uh, uh, we're just going to ruin the entire now um, <laughs> because it's sort of. It, it, I'm sorry. It kind of reminds me of the uh, the well. There's lots of weird terminology you need to talk about things like structural racism or other kinds of issues like that. Yes. There are, and that makes it hard. But if you don't kind of get into these, then you're, I think it almost is by default buying into sort of a basic sort of unexamined perspective. And I don't know how to fix that because you're absolutely right. If you then do get into all the weeds, people are like, whatever. And, and then they'll go do something else, which makes more sense. Well, and I understand that we as professionals need terms that are somewhat defined because we have to have something, we have to call it something. And I get that. And I guess that one wide swath term is not good for everything. And I think that got outlined very well in the, in the chapter that we're discussing. Um, but understanding how people who are very, very invested in their opinions on the fringe side, they're not, gonna, they're not going to follow the conversation because it just probably won't interest them. And if it does, they're going to, I can see them using it as like CC is just another way that academia is trying to bury the lead or something like that. Well, not only that, I mean, let, let's, let's be blunt. We've talked about this before. A lot of people, especially producing, maybe not following as much on the fringe side are working with an idea of say indigeneity and the examination of archeology span that was written in say 1880. Right. So this is not even going to ever enter their radar or get past their like neo pith helmets. And they also don't take into consideration, which I think, which is, I think the thing that I found the most interesting about this article, I think Stacy did an excellent job on this, by the way, um, <laughs> the whole bringing into it, the indigenous peoples, most of the fringe, when they absorb these things, like I just read a great article about neo shamanism, um, but it's the way that it's being absorbed into the new age movement and ignoring all of the bad parts of the shamanism, like the whole concept of the sorcery and the bad magic and the fact that a shaman can be both good and evil and can literally be killed for that if perceived the wrong way. And I think that was kind of one of my overall points with what I was trying to write when I talked about all the different terminologies is that what we really got is a really wide range of attitudes. And in, in the case of what I was looking at, in particular, the relationship between death, supernatural, archaeology, and ethnicity in coastal Peru. And that we're not dealing with a, you know, native versus modern dichotomy. We're not dealing with a, a you know, uh, archaeological professional versus amateur dichotomy that there is a we need a different way to look at it and some maybe less laden terms and more descriptive terms of these are the people that align with orthodoxy these are the people that are currently counter to orthodoxy and these are other people involved in the discussion um, to kind of give it more just placing where are people at in these in this array not are these people right who's more valid who's more authentic right and i think that gets even worse when when a lot of the discussion about these topics is often very oriented towards the anglosphere and towards either europe or especially north america and i don't mean that's to mean north american archaeology i mean north american society about the rest of the world where 
I mean, and we can talk about this after the break, but this can get this is really complicated with some of the terms that Stacy's been mentioning. Whereas sometimes outsiders will go, well, that's all indigenous and mystical because everybody's there. Everybody there is brown, right? I mean, I mean, I'm being yeah, 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 yeah. facetious, no, but no, that no. is kind of what comes across sometimes. Yeah, and we'll totally. That's exactly what we're going to talk about after the break. So we're going to go to break real quick, and when we get back, we're going to talk about that. Jenny McNiven, host and diva of The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty, brings a witty, personal, and often musical view of archaeology. From personal experiences to just telling you about something she really loves, you'll always be informed and entertained. Listen to The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash struggle art. Let's get back to the show. everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back, and we are going to pick up the conversation where we left off and talk about why Native people are so mystical. Because they are. <laughs> I did not say that. No, I said that. Just, I just I know. said that. I'm, I'm just clarifying for, for the future of the uh, like record of the planet. And <laughs> if anyone has ever listened to Ken's and mine's podcast, Ken and I say that all the time in an ironic way. But Stacey, tell us about how you attack that, uh, that concept in your article. Oh, yeah. So that um, definitely there's this big fetishizing of the other, um, especially when it's I like that. I'm using that from now on. Uh, I'm not sure I, I pronounced that quite right, but, um, and I don't, I don't lay claim to it. So there's been a lot of discussion about the interaction between kind of the traditional, well, pre, let's say pre-contact religious beliefs as, as far as we can suss them out, um, kind of how they get reformulated and smooshed together with Christianity during contact period. And then if you look at what's going on today with some of the the combination with new age religion movements um, and how we could see this reflected in a lot of the, the accoutrements that brujerias, um, brujos use and, and curanderos. Like, uh, so there's this research done on the North coast um, where they looked at curanderos or traditional cure shrines and lots of the ritual items that you find there or from stalls in the market and by vendors on the street uh, and, and kind of the weird array of stuff that we're getting 
in there. So whether or not these are like exotic snake skins coming from the Amazon or, um, you know, Buddha figurines or actually uh, saints figurines from places like Guatemala, like San Simon or, or Mashimon comes up and he is a, a Guatemalan saint. Yeah, do not screw at Mashimon ever. Yeah, right. And um, so he's a, a Guatemalan saint, and there's some discussion over whether or not is he uh, a manifestation of like a traditional pre-contact deity, or is he a more traditional Catholic saint? And and I don't research this. Um, a fellow named Timothy Knowlton, uh, actually my, my ex-husband, who is a great cultural anthropologist researcher, um, he talked a lot about that through his work in the Highlands. And what he saw at the chapel, one of the chapels for St. Simon, San Simon, uh, up in Guatemala was this kind of blended pan-spirituality, or he calls it the spiritus bricolage. And I really like that phrase. That's a good one, yeah. So why why is this particular saint such a badass? Oh, I'm sorry, what did you say? I, so apparently the saint is a badass? Oh, <laughs> no, I mean, he basically people go to him for help uh, when he's when you need assistance with someone. So like for graduating from uh, high school or traveling to the U.S. is really common. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so you go pray to, to the chapel. It's, it's an official church, right? But then also in the courtyard, there are these, these Maya healers. And he talks all about that in some of his work, um, Knowlton does. And what I saw going on in Peru with some of the brujeria is, is a very similar phenomenon where you're getting this paraphernalia from multiple religions from around the world, the modern new age movement, the occult, all coming together. And it's part of this, uh, placing this supernatural power in things that are other, that are foreign, that are ethnic. And that's something that you see with colonialism and in some stuff with pseudo archeology span elsewhere. So what, you're, so what you're saying is, is in the markets in Peru, you're seeing the same kind of fetishizing of the other occurring there that you see going on here in the States. Yeah, or in Guatemala. And I bet if we looked around, we could find multiple examples of this elsewhere. Okay. Uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, I see, I know it mainly of examples from Latin America, and I'd be interested in looking kind of where else in the world this happens. But again, that's taking me a little further outside my wheelhouse. But you're suggesting that this is a, a, a global effect, not just a localized effect. Definitely. Okay. Well, I, I would absolutely agree. And I, I think I think on one of the episodes I was on previously, I mentioned when I went to Avebury and of course in, in England, and of course the the one place you can buy stuff there is you know literally selling crystal balls and crystal skulls and UFO stuff and all of that and, and ley lines and all and, and I then went to Glastonbury, which is literally the heart of the new age and has all of that. Now, Stacey, you were talking about the the fetishization of the other, the exoticness and sort of getting something from somewhere else and all that. The world of the, the archaeological world, like the, the world of the archaeological past, I think is very much becomes for many people. I think this gets to the heart of so much of what we call pseudo-archaeology and the sort of the mystical way people take it. And you mentioned earlier in the interview that, uh, oh, uh, you know, healers or people that will like, you know, break people up for you or, you know, or, or put people back together for you, not physically, <laughs> they're, they're, they're things. Uh, they would do that at archaeological sites. And, and you make a really good point that there is a strong link between these kinds of rituals and archaeological sites in, in the area, including uh, one that you've actually documented archaeologically. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, so um, I was taken on by a pre-ceramic project um, during one of my first field seasons in Peru. And although I ended up not doing that as my focus, one of the things that I got to do through that is they took me around to a lot of uh, different sites. Like what is a pre-ceramic? Yeah, I was I was going to stop you there. We, we have listeners who are not archaeologists, so just pretend like we don't know anything. Okay. Uh, so there are sites of monumental architecture, like large stone mounds, pyramids, plazas, and these were built by folks who did not use ceramics. And we're talking around 3,000, 
2500 BC in Peru, uh, right along the coast. And it's actually a really active area of archaeological research right now and, and a lot of infighting too. But uh, so if you're really into controversies, go look at coastal Peru. Um, Particularly the site, for example, of uh, El Caral, C-A-R-A-L. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but It's a very cool site. It's a very cool site. You should it, look it, it is. Up. And actually, a lot of these sites are really neat. Uh, but what you've got going on, when I was at one of them, uh, in particular, the site of Porvenir, um, up on the hillside, there was a little, like, black magic shrine. I think they're for Brujeria. <laughs> And they had, like, the different scraps of paper with prayers on them that invoked all sorts of different deities, um, but a lot of them mainly Christian deities. So, like, you know, powerful God or um, Mary or different saints. But at the same time, they mention invoking the ancestors. They explicitly say, you know, I call upon the ancestors, too. And up on these areas where you're overlooking, you have a great view of the archaeological site, and they've brought up there um, quite a few skulls. Okay, uh, let me stop you there. Yeah. Uh, we kind of skipped over this because we were excited to get to this because this is really actually very cool. Can you explain to us um, the relevance of ancestor worship in the mummy bum bundles? Because that actually links back to this, and I think that's a piece that it's, if it's missing may not make sense to people. Right. Okay. Okay, uh, so Peru has a very long history of active ancestor worship. Um, it's a very important component of pre-contact, post-contact religious concepts, okay? And one of the things that were really common for how, how you deal with human remains in the past is they don't cremate, we don't see a lot of cremation. And instead we see burials and the form of burials are people are tucked up in something called a mummy bundle. And this so is very different than Egypt, right? Very different because you don't have like intentional um, treatment of the body. Like you're not removing organs, you're not soaking it in some sort of salts or anything. Basically you're just taking the person and you're tying them up in kind of like a scrunched up fetal position and then wrapping them in layers and layers of cloth and in between different layers of fabric, you're tucking in little trinkets like ceramics or jewelry or little miniature figurines of llamas or what the heck. And you wrap the person up into this large pod bundle thing. And sometimes they'll even take and make like a little false head, a little cloth head and they'll paint a little face and, and sew that to the top. And you take this bundle and, uh, at least for on the coast, they would put these bundles into underground chambers. They would dig like a room, line it with adobe, you know, clay bricks and put the mummy bundle in there and close off the roof. And whenever someone died, you'd stick another person in there. You know, we think they're grouped together according by some sort of like family grouping or social status grouping. And so you'll get chambers with dozens and dozens of these mummy bundles. All right. Um, and every so often we think that people would open them up, open up these chambers at certain times of the year, maybe even take a mummy bundle out and parade them about in a ceremony huh. and give offering to them um, ask questions of them as a way of invoking the ancestors because you you literally have your ancestor right there. Okay. All right. right. Now this ties back to our black magic shrines. Right. Because so a lot of these mommy bundles they're very popular looters targets, right? Um, because they've got all these beautiful textiles and ceramics and stuff. So we often find remnants of these burials and sometimes you might not find them in such big chamber groupings sometimes you might find them in smaller isolated uh in, or individual burials but when looters dig them up at an archaeological site they take the, the cool stuff and everything else is just strewn about on the landscape and it's all super well preserved because peru is incredibly dry desert everything preserves like you can still see 
um, bodies with flesh with tattoos on them. And it's dried, kind of like people jerky, for I guess for a lack of a better term. <laughs> <laughs> but you have tattoos, like you have scalps with hair on them. You have eyelashes. You have... And that's creepy and you can keep them. Yeah, fingernails. Like, it, uh. it's kind of amazing. Um, but what we see is that the brujos, they take the any of the defleshed skulls any skulls that didn't have any flesh preserving on them and would put them up at the black magic shrine so they're not picking up the skulls with with heads with with hair on them and skin on the face still they're taking the clean skulls and they're putting it up at the shrine and putting them in this kind of like little arrangement with the other offerings and flowers and candy and burnt candles and so forth. And, and so you- that seems to confirm more or conform more to like European ideas of what would go on an altar like that versus sort of the, the more, more interested ancestral remains that would be indigenous. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because, um, so in studies on the anthropology of death, uh, there's a couple like key works, and uh, one researcher that kind of wrote a core of stuff was uh, Hertz, okay, and also Van Gennep is another one, and Robert Hertz wrote a very seminal essay, um, and he stressed in there this talking about secondary funerals or funerals where you have a body that's been buried once and then they're dug up and then reburied as part of a ceremony. Um, so in other words, it's the second time of burial, the secondary burial. And talking about how that correlates with concepts about the decay of corpses being associated with uh, beliefs in afterlife or the fate of the soul or the, these concepts of death, right? And rather than this traditional what anthropologists talk about this bones versus fleshy parts split um, that humans categorize uh, dead remains into either either you're dead or you're living you're either bones or you're fleshy right gotcha. um, that here in, in traditional beliefs in peru they seem to have this heavy emphasis on desiccated flesh this preservation of the corpse, but in its kind of mummified state. And in some cases, we find examples of burials where they've reconstructed the bodies in parts with like wood or fabric or like those false heads I was talking about where they add on a head on the top. Um, so that I think changes our ideas of, of how people view human remains a little bit differently in ancient Peru than perhaps how we do today. And definitely what the brujo, what the, the brujos are are an example of is they're treating, they're putting emphasis upon the bones as the important pieces of the past. They're taking only the really like nice white, clean, bleach skulls and using them in their displays. They're not taking any of the more desiccated flesh. And that's a departure from what's likely more a traditional viewpoint. So, to, and that kind of gets into our discussion back with terminology of always wanting to attach um, this, this like native versus modern views and that everything traditional, that, that the brujos would be doing everything traditionally speaking, and they're not. So this actually could be more of an example, and I know you mentioned this in the article as well, that whole concept of a, of a cult religion, uh, like a cargo cult religion, um, where they're trying to recreate something that they're not f- 100% fully sure how to do. So they're going through the motions, but missing some important parts. Mm-hmm. I think it less of them missing parts as picking and choosing what fits within their new construct. Okay. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking, you have in here table one, it's an inventory at the altar and you've got all sorts of stuff there so that there are human remains, but then there's all kinds of sort of like herb and perfumed waters, uh, like tonic waters, a few other animal remains, a few bits of clothing, and then you've got candles of all sorts. And again, this screams Western. And then my favorite newspaper clippings, love horoscopes and articles about a famous movie star's love life. 
<laughs> next to bags of coca, of coca leaves. And so you've got this, this very wonderful mix. Some of it's broken pottery, some of it's styrofoam trays. So, I mean, you're like, when you talk about sort of bricolage, I mean, this is a very kind of innovative and creative sort of practice. Absolutely. And it's, it's definitely a new construct. It's what people are picking and choosing and putting together as what they think is important for ritual practices as spiritually charged items. And I think it's very telling that some of the things that they're including are modern materials. Some of the things that they're including are foreign materials and some of the things that they're including are archeological materials. Yeah. So how does the archaeology, and maybe we'll save this for when we come back from the break, but how is the archaeology directly affecting this concept of spiritualism, uh, the spiritualness of the archaeological sites? Mm. Well, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead, Jim. Well, one thing I mean that immediately strikes me is if you're if you're going to like the larger Western and Westernized and global world, and you like sort of kick around in our kind of paranormal culture, uh, when you think Latin America and you think mystical and whatnot, what's the first thing that probably comes to most people's minds? It's shamanism and it's pyramids. And so I wonder if it's a thing that's kind of granted from the outside that's impacting spiritual uh, practices in various ways. Okay, well, let's go to a break real quick, and when we come back, we'll uh, we'll chew that over a little bit more. Profiles in CRM, a weekly podcast. Ask CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Let's get back to the show. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey, popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. All right, and we're back, and we're still talking about how archaeology influences this concept of the spiritualness of the things that are being looted, including skulls, apparently. Right, and and in your article, Stacey, you, you talk about a couple of different kinds of, like, literal physical impacts. So there's one thing, a lot of pseudo-archaeology talks, uh, or a lot of discussion about pseudo-archaeology talks about our interpretations of the past. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, not built by these people, it's built by aliens, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> in your article, you actually talk about literal, physical impacts of uh, traditional healing, modern ideas that are sort of occult and paranormal-based, as well as the straight up the market and other kinds of influences. So could you talk a little about these sorts of different things? Right. So what we've got going on is when people go to archaeological sites, uh, because these aren't abandoned places by any means, but they're definitely, people are using it for a variety of reasons. And we get different people going to these places um, depending on what their motivation is. So for example, um, You've got kind of what we think of as, as looting, but really there's different forms of looting, right? So you have the classic looter, someone who is digging up um, usually human remains in order to find the, the cool stuff, right? The nice intact pottery or the beautiful textiles. And they have and, a name. Yeah, they're called waqueros. Oh, and right. how does that translate roughly? Um, well. Or does it? <laughs> Well, it, Waka it, it, is basically a sacred site in sort of the, is it, that's in Quechua, right? Yeah, it's Quechua, yeah. and it's usually referring to some sort of, yeah, sacred place or temple, right? You call it like Waka de la Luna, 
Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be an archaeological site in the traditional sense. It could be a mountaintop. It could be like a a, a, a water place. But it's become kind of the name throughout most of South America and even into some of Central America for an archaeological site in the same way that a tell in the Middle East has. And yeah. a generic term for sort of like professional looters has become Waquero. Okay. And these are the people who are digging things up to sell them. Yes. Yeah. So if you buy on eBay a beautiful Nazca textile, it was probably wrapped around a corpse. Just FYI to anybody who wants to do that. Oh, don't, should, don't it, tell people that. And they shouldn't. No, don't tell yeah. people that because now they're just going to want to buy it more. Oh, I, see, I was going to go the other way with that, but anyway. Well, and because that's where you find these amazing things is intact burials, right? The, the grave goods that people are buried with to carry with them in the afterlife or what have you, um, which is always what strikes me as pretty, I don't know, funny, ha-ha, funny, eh, when <laughs> I'm on a pre-ceramic site, so a large stone mound, and this is for a group that did not make fancy textiles, they were doing mostly plain cotton. It's pre-ceramic, so there aren't any ceramics there. And yet you see this giant looter's hole from the very tippy top going, oh, I don't know, 6, 12, 15 feet deep. And this, you know, obviously they were just digging through rocks and rocks and rocks, looking for some sort of elaborate burial that is just not going to be there. So I don't know. I get a weird glee out of the fact that they spend a lot of effort finding nothing. But then it screws up our archaeology, so it still makes it sad. <laughs> damn leaders right but so you get people who are are doing that and there's definitely a relationship between um archaeological information and the occult because first of all looters at times are informed by what archaeologists do so for example um my advisor had excavated a burial at a site and then once that hit the news she went back the following season and there were like four more fresh looters holes right around where she had excavated. And definitely one of those looters had found another burial. You know, so as archaeologists, we're always afraid of saying when we've found stuff or we have to be really careful not to identify the location too much because looters might go then go dig it up. And even more broadly, even if more broadly, when there's a major, so I mean, Sipan immediately comes to mind, when there's a major discovery, or even with the case of the Maya, after the decipherment of uh, Maya hieroglyphs, that increases looting because it basically increases the value of those pieces on the art market and in museum exhibitions. So as much as we, we desperately try to like protect heritage, we give it some of its value. Yeah, so then one thing that we see with, with people that are looters is, um, there's a couple things. One is they're very worried about cursors. Like curse in, in the classic, like mummies curse or being cursed by their ancestors because these are supernaturally charged places. So quite often um, illness, there's like a, a Wakero's kind of cold or flu essentially uh, that spreads around or um, you'll get these brujos or curers being hired to remove curses or protect them from the wrath of the ancestors for the type of work that leaders are doing. And just to be clear, like I, there are people who there, there's this there's, there's this brand of almost pseudo skepticism that sees something and comes up with like kind of a, a half-assed materialist with no evidence thing. So like the, oh, the King Tut curse, well, maybe there was poisonous mold and blah, 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 that sort of thing. That's not, there's nothing like that here. There's no, like, the actual physical reason why a waquero would get sicker than somebody not pawing through tombs. So they, the, so what you're saying is the local... No, I'm, I'm, that was a question. I mean, there isn't any Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, um, not at all. There's, there's no actual physical correlate to it except for the fact that you're you know properly that you know probably not properly dressed out at the wee hours in the morning right. doing heavy labor in kind of the the nighttime chill right well, okay that's true that's true and these are people who are probably they're doing it to earn money to live off of it's not like yeah. they're wealthy so i mean probably not great nutrition right. or Absolutely. medical access in the first place but they, but these are people that truly believe that they are going to be cursed. Not all of them, but yes, definitely. Okay. This does for sure. It's they're not just giving lip service to it. Gotcha. Um, some of them also look for kind of supernatural signs to locate places of. Yeah, talk about that some. That was cool. Right. So um, one of the things that I've heard from from people 
um, who work, you know, some of the workmen that we hire or I have met a couple of caros, um, they talk about treasure lights. In other words, these glowing lights, balls of, of light that you can only see at certain times of like dusk or dawn or certain hours of the night floating over an area very briefly you only catch a glimpse as a place of where you should dig for treasure they're called Hmm. treasure lights and i've been looking into this whole thing a little more i i think that's a european tradition because you find it first of all you find it throughout latin america you even find uh, you, you see people talk about this in the middle east and i've been reading a little bit about sort of medieval and into early modern treasure hunting, it seems like it's tied into these sorts of activities. And that's kind of become part of Latin America. But you'll see people try to argue that it's deep, deep, deep tradition. And maybe it is. Maybe there's syncretism joining I, two I traditions. I was going to say, it's, it, that could totally but be. It could be. But so many people don't even want to examine it because they just treat it all as like, well, it's all weird and exotic. So I don't know what's going on here. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And it's definitely coming. I mean, at the very least, there is a component of this coming from Europe. Um so who knows to say how much it was traditional, but people are, are still doing this today. It's not like, I mean, I see references. I was just in the archive up at uh, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, looking at uh, Bandelier's journals. And he was an archeologist in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And he was traveling around Peru and he's got discussions with workmen about these treasure lights and them telling him stories about treasure lights. But it's not like this is an outdated concept because there are actual forums online that you can go to today. And, and there's some people who actually publish little booklets on how to capture treasure lights on film and seeing them and like what type of camera and aperture you should use and whether or not it works better with film versus digital format. So this is a, a modern practice right now. That just that just ex- sounds exactly like orbs. Yeah, okay. and I Getting I just orbs. read a I read a book just recently on UFOs in Latin Mesoamerica, uh, like a very a very sympathetic to that perspective, and it is full of related ideas of these things sort of being tied into UFO spirits and into UFOs and aliens and whatnot. I was gonna say I I just remembered there's a there's a phenomena that's supposed to be that's supposed to occur before a Bigfoot sighting where you're there's uh-huh. supposed to be fairy lights that are that precede the appearance of Bigfoot as well. Yep. So yeah, no, I mean, it, this could be a European interloper, but I, I would be surprised if there wasn't some, you know, uh, native explanation for it as well. Uh, talk about the coca leaves or the cacao. Coca, 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 coca. Talk coca. About the coca leaves. Yes. Coca leaves. Um, coca is a plant that comes from mostly the highlands of Peru and it's green and leafy and you can dry it out and, and well dry it up a little bit and then you chew it and you often add a little bit of a substance to activate it and the juices it released the, the alkaloids um basically it's where you can derive cocaine from it but yeah, uh, but that's but that's white people's fault yeah right. <laughs> Well, it is. I mean, okay, that, that, no. that's like a 19th century chemical extract of thing that people had not been doing for thousands of years. They had been using it like it's a mild stimulant. I was going to say, you still, you still get a buzz yeah. off of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's no more than like caffeine or nicotine or okay. something like that. But they believe that when they're chewing the coca leaf, it gets sweet. Or at least that's what you said in your article. It gets sweet when they're about to find something interesting. Right. So again, looking for other of these signals to tell you when you're near something to lose, something of value, that the spirits are, are changing something so you can perceive it. Very. That, that's. I, I don't know. I just think that's cool. Uh, <laughs> little things we do. Are you? Are you? Are you think? Are you? May, are you making a suggestion? This might explain certain uh, certain stereotypes of archaeologists and uh, controlled substances. Oh, those aren't those aren't stereotypes. Okay. I, I've worked with those people. Yeah. Um, so, Jeb, do you have somewhere? Do you have another question you want to ask? Um, well, so you mentioned Waqueros, um, and that's like when we think of like the big bad nasty market, and we mentioned uh, Atwood's book earlier. Those are, of course, the people that feed this, and they feed the international hunger for. Uh, uh, all sorts of archaeological treasures. But that's not the only kind of sort of – so we mentioned that. We talked about the use of the, – the skulls you mentioned earlier, a lot of that comes from their, like, leftovers. Like, we oh, I can't sell this. and these, There are piles of human bones everywhere. But you also talked yeah. about some other kinds of 
uh, sort of non-scientific disruptions or, or, or uh, modifications of the archaeological record that I, I suspect a lot of our, our listeners would probably not be aware of. Could you maybe talk about that? Sure. So um, more than just looters and archaeologists come to the site, um, there are, you know, obviously people pass through and I mentioned, you know, there are goat herders that have their herds eat at the fields nearby. But uh, some of the people that go there explicitly for these sites are, uh, think of it for like school field trips and for vacationing. And I don't mean like formal tourism routes, although Definitely, those are increasing um, in popularity. There is that whole archaeological tourism thing. But um, what, what we see is that at some of these coastal sites, they're like weekend sites or holiday sites where people from the capital, from Lima, um, kind of townies, you know, will go up and uh, go to the beaches which are beautiful, they do some surfing, and then maybe they go you know, see a couple of sites and they'll take some souvenirs home or during like uh, the Day of the Dead, right? Dia de los Muertos, um, or Holy Week uh, associated with Easter. They'll go there perhaps to have like a picnic, feast, um, you know, both honoring the ancestors and, you know, digging some pots and bones to take home and display in their houses in the capital. Um, so you've got that going on, which is this kind of ambivalent view towards it. It's both a matter of respect and kind of appropriation. Um, Would you make some comparisons between that and, say, like early antiquarianism? Do you think I mean, you hear those same things in, like, say, you know, Britain in the early 1800s, where like, oh, we went and we, you know, trenched a mound and we made a picnic <laughs> of it, and is it is it is it sort of like that? Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's a good comparison to make oh, wow. um, because there is this feeling of these are their ancestors, this is their cultural heritage, and they're, they're taking part in the cultural heritage, just in maybe a less than orthodox or archaeologist pleasing sort of way. And in fact, uh, so one time we were out, the group that I was with, we were out looking at different sites and surveying, and we're looking at this one cemetery area that's all been looted, and we go over the ridge to where the, the rest of the cemetery was, and we come upon oh, I don't know, about 30 school children. And the bus is parked right nearby. And there's all these kids literally like playing about the cemetery. And like one kid was rolling along this partially flesh skull with a scalp. And he's like holding it by the hair and swinging it and kind of rolling it and then kicking it like a soccer ball. And they had collected a little pile of some of the coolest stuff they had found while wandering around. And this was a school field trip. The teachers had taken them there to go literally look at their ancestors. Um, and they're all dressed up in their little school uniforms. And, you know, we had a little conversation with the school teachers about the local museum and maybe they should go there instead. But... <laughs> This may be this may be a thing to get that might be a little too long to get into, but uh, one thing I think for some of our listeners in uh, North America, for example, uh, there is not a strong relationship between, say, like archaeology and the state. I mean, there's you know there's the parks and and the park service and all that, but largely we think of archaeology as a scientific thing associated with universities and almost sort of like an uh, you know not in Latin America it's very often associated with the state. And, and science, and, and, and Ryan Cook brings this up, and you talk about this in your article, it's often associated with power. So there's actually a political component in, in Latin America th with, with archaeology. W would you say that? Yeah, and definitely what I would say, all these groups that we've been talking about have in common. So we've got this, this Waquero who is a, a looter. Um, but one of the things that you know when you talk to people about looters is they don't know anyone who does it. The looters always coming from elsewhere. Like right. they're coming down from up north. They're coming from the highlands. They're, they're not lo a local. Um, we've got the archaeologists, the, the foreign archaeologists, government backed, that sort of thing. We've got the brujo, which also they, they talk about brujos as not being locals. The central coast. And you get the and same. You get the same thing. People. I'm sorry. 
uh, yeah, no, they say these are people who are, they're not here. They're from up north or from the highlands uh, or from the Amazon, right? And you so often get the same other. thing with shakes in the Middle East controlling jinn at archaeological sites, like J-I-N-N. You get the same sort of thing. Oh, in Egypt, all the best, like, shakes that control jinn are from Libya. <laughs> right. So what what people do is they put all these three into this outsider role, and these outsiders all act at the very, you know, what's viewed as a very spiritually charged locus of an archaeological site. That's where all these outsiders come together at the same place and are all doing something there. Um, yeah. and, and, and if you think about it, I mean, these, these sites that are, you know, North Americans come there and Europeans come there and people from the capital come to some small rural thing and they're all ooing and aahing and cooing and spent and you know hiring people to dig holes and doing all these things, they're kind of investing these almost with a with a supernatural power through those activities. Right. And then you bring that back with you, right? You take it home, put it on your shelf. Or it, it's this whole idea of using archaeological remains of material culture to add importance, to add value, to connect you with that that past, that authentic, that ancestral. Like um hell. So I went out to visit Jeb. Uh, once and we stopped at a little antique store nearby where he lives and while browsing around this antique store I guess maybe you could make the argument that we hold antiques in in value not just as physical items right because they're just wooden furniture or what have you but because of what they embody symbolically history oh yeah oh yeah right definitely Um, but at this antique store there were these little dolls and these dolls, I recognize them immediately. They are modern-made dolls of, they've got little faces and folded arms and stuff, but they're made out of scraps of looted textiles, just textiles from mummy you can find on the surface. Yeah, well, they're not shaped like mummy bundles, but they're made out of textiles from mummy bundles. Right, and yeah. And someone's rewrapped them into like a little dolly. And these are, you know, 600-year-old, textiles that scraps that have been pieced together in a little doll and being sold out in the middle of Ohio from corpses. Yes. Jeb's very concerned about the corpses. (laughs) So, you know, why are these things antique shop? Why are they important? Why are they valuable? It's not just because it's dusty old fabric, right? But it's what does this signify? What is this connected to? Yeah. Well, I, can I read a quote from the article? Is that okay? Since it oh, hasn't yeah, been published yet? Okay. So you, you quote this uh, in your article. You say, uh, quote, he had collected these items because it was mi historia mis antigos. <laughs> his history, his ancestors. From locals, or for some locals, this connection with the past is a point of pride. It is the tendency to collect things, the desire to show them to other people, and at times a sense of immortality, ancestral connection that drives many to acquire archaeological remains. Now, I like that quote so much, and I think that ties into why those dolls are important and also why people in America walk fields, why people who are looting but not selling go and do what they do. There's this sense that this is part of my history or it's part of my identity, whether it is or isn't. It's the identity that I have assumed And these things are part of that identity. And therefore, they are rightfully mine to have and to take and to display. And I think that's part of the problem that we run into, uh, well, here in America and obviously in Peru as well, with conflict with people. Please don't pick that up. Please don't take that home. Please don't dig these holes. Put Put these things someplace where everyone can see them. And the person replies with, well, why should I? It's mine. Right. Okay, so let me leave you with one last story, which is, makes this more fun, about taking things home. So Great. Um, one of the things that uh, happened at the field house that I was staying at is they had a cat. And I found out the story of where they got this cat. <laughs> Apparently, this cat had been found while they were surveying an archaeological site. Um, the cat was in a black 
plastic bag. Oh no! Right, uh, with like a big adobe brick sitting on top of the bag, so the cat couldn't get out. And it was surrounded with flower petals and ca- melted candles and offerings and so forth as part of these brujeria rituals. And so uh, the project director he ran into this, and they freed the cat and took it home and kept it as a project pet. But they always joked about how they were concerned, like maybe they cursed the project because they messed up some brujeria. Um, so I always thought that was an interesting, uh, point of contact between all these worlds. Yeah. I have to imagine that would go the other way that the, the brujo <laughs> was then like devoured by like an entire just mob of cats, like one, a swarm. One can only hope. <laughs> it is interesting that, um, that the, I mean, the whole point of that is an animal sacrifice. It's interesting that they left it to die in that manner, as opposed to putting it out of its misery first. But I'm glad the cat was saved. Me too. Um, and I don't think they were cursed. I think maybe they got the blessing of Bast out of that. And they named him Waco, so very Waco. Awesome. <laughs> well, Stacy, thank you very much. This has yes, been great. You. And like I said, I really enjoyed your chapter out of this book. I think I'm going to enjoy the book overall. Um, and Jeb, thank you very much for introducing yep. us to Stacy. No, this has been fantastic, and 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 Stacy, uh, thank you very much. It's been it's been great, especially to talk about this from the sort of Latin American perspective. Yes. Uh, so, uh, no, I think I think that's it, and this is this has been fantastic. Great, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, Go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.